Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Everything Else. I'm your host, Nick Stewart. Well, as promised for this week's episode, I'm going to read from my new book, Black Threads. I'm going to go for a little bit for this episode and then do a whole lot longer um, for the Patreon-exclusive version. Um, so if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash nicksteward. Um, charges for the Patreon membership won't start back up again until March. So if you sign up now, you'll get February free. Not too bad a deal. Um, also, a link to buy the book on Amazon will be in the episode description along with that. And I have uh, an exciting announcement for that. Um, if you buy my book, Black Threads, like I said, available on Amazon.com, uh, during the week of uh, January 16th, that's when this episode drops, uh, 16th through the 22nd, um, all proceeds from that book will be going to my best friend, Mario DiBella, as he fights against ALS. Uh, as you can imagine, it's very expensive to care for someone with ALS. Um, it costs over six figures per year, so um, the money will go to he and his wife Jessica, who cares for him around the clock. And since I have no money, it's all I can do at the moment to help them out. So uh, link to the book um, is going to be in the episode description. And if you already have the book, you can still help out. I'm going to put um, Jessica's Venmo in there. Um, so, yeah, that'll help them out. And, um, you know, I, I think I think we can do this, guys. Like, I think we can make this week bigger than the week that the book came out. I'm not going to say how much I made off off the book the week that it came out. But I know we can make more for Mario, so I'll leave it at that. Um, so I hope you enjoy the, the following, which will be a reading from the book. And uh, if you haven't yet, head on over to Amazon and buy a copy to help Mario. Thanks, everybody. Chapter 1. There Once Were Dinosaurs. 1. Loss of faith in one's purpose in the world are lofty thoughts to have before noon, more so when they precede the first cup of coffee. The alarm clock went off at 9.12 a.m., and Finn Miller fidgeted in his bed, tangled in the sheets and covers until his hand emerged and found the snooze button. He opened his eyes and stared at the ceiling as if he would see a reason up there to stay awake. That is as long as it took for the mental deluge to come, the great questions. He was 38, alone, and occupied a two-bedroom apartment down the street from his workplace. He kept his world small, and he liked it that way. He wasn't all right, and it had been that way for a long time. Finn's problem with faith was that it was hard to define where facts ended and where trust began. Faith requires both. And not for lack of trying, it seemed he could never grasp either. It hadn't always been that way, though. There was a time when he thought his faith was as certain and thoroughly tried and true as the laws of gravity, but one day he faced things that brought all into question. Ever since then, he was haunted day and night by the mysteries of life, and nothing but whiskey could make them cease. He swung his legs over the side of the bed and stood up, 
and teetered until he recovered his balance. He had a slight crisis of the spins before that also corrected itself. He opened his squeaky bedroom door and listed to the kitchen for coffee as his feet shuffled across the floor. It was like his feet knew the longer his stride became and the higher over the ground they stepped, the more certain the course of the day became. They wanted to go back to bed, and Finn knew that because he wanted to go back to bed. He shuffled past supernumerary bookcases filled to the brim with volumes, from pamphlets to tomes. It seemed the majority of the apartment was books. He didn't keep much art, knickknacks, furniture, pictures of loved ones, or even food. There was a couch and a coffee table, and a television in the living room, along with a desk and a dinner table. Everything else was just books, and you could be sure that those few pieces of furniture also supported various stacks. He hadn't eaten a meal at the table for four years, which made its primary purpose book storage, just like the rest of the fixtures in the place. He poured his coffee into a mug that donned a portrait of John Owen on the side, a mug Stephanie had given him many years before. To Finn, nobody compared to John Owen. He could read Owen for hours, and often did, but that morning he read something different. There was a note left in the center of the kitchen counter, in the one usable bit of space not taken by appliances and liquor bottles with varied degrees of fullness. You fell asleep, had to get home, XOXO, the note read. He smirked and slipped it into some box on some shelf on top of some books in some room. It was so cluttered even he knew he would never find it again, but he wanted to keep it regardless. He always saved birthday cards, notes, and pictures, but instead of displaying them, he stowed them away in some nook or cranny and then never saw them again. A lot of good sentimentality did for him. He supposed he was sentimental for one thing, though. Even though he could not or would not ever put his thoughts and feelings into words, he was in love. He was in love for the first time in years, However, due to the complicated nature of the relationship, he would never say it, but that's exactly what it was. It was love, even if he never said it. On the couch with his coffee on the table in front of him, he picked up a half-empty bottle of whiskey and drank from it. He took a cigarette from the pack next to the bottle and lit it. He smoked, sipped his coffee, and gave himself five minutes apiece before he left for work. 2. Resurrection Church was large, a megachurch. That was the parlance of non-denominational evangelicalism. The parking lot was the size of a shopping mall's, a great open range of asphalt throughout the week that was suitable for driving lessons or skateboarding, but the large security presence made that difficult. Lush greenery and large trees freckled the lot and surrounded the buildings, a landscaping accomplishment that surely took years to cultivate. Several buildings stood on the property, an office building, the main sanctuary, and a few smaller buildings for various Bible studies and youth and college groups. One building even had a fully operational coffee shop on the ground floor, which did most of its heavy lifting on Sunday mornings but served employees throughout the week as well. The sanctuary of the church was huge, yet minimalist in style. At just under 10,000 square feet, it had room for expansion beyond the 1,500 seats that housed its congregants. During services, the lights over the audience would power down and leave only a dim light above them by which to read or take notes. The largest television screens on the market were situated around the room so that, no matter where you sat, you could see song lyrics, Bible verses, or the pastor's face in high definition. 
Abby, the receptionist for the pastoral offices on the second story of the office building, sat with her elbows on her desk and both hands wrapped around a coffee mug with a floral design on it. Good morning, Pastor Rich, she said. She was a woman in her 60s who maintained a facade of care and not pain. On occasion, there would come a groan when she was asked to do something, or a wince when she got up out of her chair, or when her rugose hands suffered an arthritis flare-up and made her unable to grip her coffee mug properly. That's when her true age would show. But between those times, she stayed young. Elbows perched and coffee mug double-fisted, she greeted Rich the same way every morning when he arrived. He smiled and said, Good morning, Abby. How are you? Pastor Richard Donovan was in his 40s, and for that much time on earth, he had only a smatter of gray in his thick brown hair to show for it, and a smile that made you feel like you were the only person in the room, however disingenuous it may have been. If you met him at a barbecue, it would be the kind of smile that made you cease any other form of mingle. You would belong to him for the next however long, and you would be content to talk to him about anything. You could care less what he did for a living. No matter what he did, you knew he was the one with whom you wanted to spend your time. The eye contact, the firm handshake, the sculpted jaw. He was your best friend for however long he would have you. To some, his personality was infectious. Many said it. Finn, on the other hand, was always quick to point out that all sociopaths on this side of the prison bars had infectious personalities. That's what separates the ones in there from the ones out here. With a good personality, a sociopath gets things, and when they get things, it's easier to find momentary satisfaction. But boredom, or dissatisfaction, or some other thing builds and builds until sooner or later, the more socially awkward ones explode and kill somebody. Who they killed didn't mean much. It could be as significant as the poor mother, or it could be a fast food worker who didn't treat them with the respect they felt they deserved. Without the proper outlets to channel it, it would happen eventually, and then they would end up on the other side of the bars. By that point in Finn's soliloquy, his captive audience would try to change the subject, but he was very persistent on that point once he started, and he didn't care whether or not Rich was within earshot when he said it. Could you do me a favor and print out the quarterly giving statements? Rich asked Abby. We need to get those out in the mail as soon as possible. The Astons will be here at 9.30, she said but I can handle it as soon as they get here and get settled. He smiled with approval. Pastor Finn is late again, she said. Suddenly, he was serious, and he put his hands down on the high reception desk and interlocked his fingers as the smile fell from his face. Abby, he said, we didn't want to make a big deal about it when he stepped down from pastoral ministry, but we're trying not to refer to him that way anymore. He's just a biblical counselor now. That way people don't get confused. Okay. She covered her mouth like a small child who cursed at her grandmother's house. I'm so sorry, she said. I keep forgetting. He saw her remorse and brought back his handsome smile to assure her all was well. Is there coffee? he asked. Abby, mid-sip, exclaimed in the affirmative and stood up. You get settled in your office and I'll bring you a cup, she said. Thanks, he said. As he turned away, he added over his shoulder, let me know when Finn gets in, will you? She nodded, thankful to have recovered from such a verbal blunder. Around the corner, as she poured him his cup of coffee, she called out, Oh, I forgot, the new intern starts this morning. Rich's smile ran away once more. 3. 
Adam Taylor gasped with a half-knotted necktie around his throat. He had one hand on each side of the bathroom counter while he tried to stay on his feet. He watched himself in the mirror and hoped his mother wouldn't hear him. He had just finished high school that spring, and his mother, Jennifer, had pressured him to get a job. He suffered, as is already apparent, from panic attacks, severe anxiety. The condition was severe enough to complicate the matter of his employment. The pressure from his mother persisted undetoured, and a compromise was eventually met. Since she was friends with the receptionist, Abby, she was able to make arrangements for him to get an internship at their church. Her friendship with Abby began in light of her husband's death 14 years earlier. Abby, a younger woman then, but still many years Jennifer's senior, took it upon herself to be an ear that could listen and a shoulder that could bear the weight of a weeping woman. They had been friends ever since. That was Adam's first day of his internship, but while he had been getting dressed, an anxiety attack came out of nowhere. His mother knew about them, obviously, but out of embarrassment, he preferred to keep them as need-to-know as possible. What Jennifer didn't know was that Adam had been off his anxiety medication for three days. 4. Finn came into the church offices with his coffee cup in one hand and a large book in the other. His sunglasses were still on, which prompted Abby to ask him, Is it too bright in here for you? I mean, Finn said sarcastically. Intentionally trailed off to nowhere, he was interrupted when she said, The Astons are waiting for you. I know that, he said. Their appointment was at 9.30. Oh, sorry, she said. I was just letting you know. Of course I know, he said. Their session started 15 minutes ago and they're never late. Well, you weren't rushing, she said, so I just thought, it's okay, he said, and took off his sunglasses. One day they'll be late enough for me to be on time. You're late, came a voice from behind. Finn turned around and saw Rich there with his tablet in his hands, mindlessly clicking away at something while he walked and talked. Well, Finn said defensively, you're undressing me with your eyes, but I'm not about to make a federal case out of it. I don't pay you to make my congregants wait, Rich said. Of course not, Finn said. You pay me to make them wait while I stand out here and talk to you about how you don't pay me to make them wait. Finn held up his bare left wrist to pantomime a glance at an imaginary watch. And look at that. It's 9.46 now. The clock is ticking. I better get in there. Rich went back to his office with a dismissive wave of his hand while Finn made his way to his. Finn's office was smaller than the rest of them. Whether he chose this out of some melancholic self-sabotage or it was a genuine act of humility was a fact long lost to history, although one seemed more likely than the other. Compared to his apartment, the office was quite tidy. The desk was organized with distinct stacks of paper, a place for pens, etc., the other two walls were ensconced with bookcases to the ceiling. His desk and the chairs for visitors took up what space remained. Mark and Claudia Aston had been kept waiting for over 15 minutes. They were his first appointment every Monday, and it was his least favorite of the week.
All right, I'm going to cut it off there. And if you want to hear the rest, you can head over to patreon.com slash nicksteward. It's only $4 a month, which is an incredibly competitive price in these inflationary days. <laughs> Not to toot my own horn. Uh, that's why I'm poor. So don't forget, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you don't have a copy of Black Threads yet, head over to the link in the description to get a copy. 100% of proceeds this week, the 16th through the 22nd of January, will go to Mario Debella and his fight against ALS. Uh, maybe you already have the book, still want to give, still want to help out. Great news. Jessica's Venmo is uh, Jessica's Mario's wife. I said that at the top of the show, but most people don't have a memory. So uh, <laughs> Jessica's Venmo is also going to be in the um, episode description. So if you have the book, but you still want to give, you can just send money directly there. So uh, that's all I've got. And I'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Thanks for listening.